Hey everybody, welcome to the Beautiful Shifts podcast. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Chantel. We're so excited to share with you some inspiring stories. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Now it's easier to walk I can see the road before me I am not afraid to fall All right, welcome to the Beautiful Shifts podcast today. Um, we're so excited today. We have my cousin-in-law, Carla Haslam, with us. Hi, Carla. Hi, how are you? Good. Good. Thank you for being here. Yes. Yeah, of course. I'm really excited. We're so excited. Carla is my cousin Daniel's wife, so she's my cousin-in-law, and Daniel grew up right behind me. We shared backyards growing up, so he's a great guy, and it's just been really fun to have Carla as part of the family. She's one of those people that every time you talk to her, she's so genuine, and like you can tell she truly cares to learn about the people around her and just kind of makes everyone feel loved and welcome, so... I mean, truly gracious, like probably more, one of the most gracious people I've ever met. Wow, so Lindsay, thank I, you. Oh no, I'm goodness. serious. I'm like getting like little misty eyed. <laughs> you are, you are totally. So I just think so highly of Carla and even more so, I mean, if it was possible, even more so now that I have seen her Ted talk and seen all the amazing work that she's doing. So I'm super excited. We were able to get her to be on today. Yes. So, yes. Thank awesome. you. I'm going to read a bio about Carla. Um, Carla is a dual citizen of Columbia and the United States and grew up in South Jordan, Utah. From a young age, Carla has been passionate about public policy and Latino civil rights. In 2021, she received her Juris Doctorate degree from BYU Law, where she was a member of the school's first majority female graduating class, which is so awesome. <laughs> it was great. It was there. She began working with asylum seekers on the U.S.-Mexican border and within, within her home community of Salt Lake City, Utah. As a 2019-2020 leadership fellow, Carla spent extensive time analyzing and researching the power of leaders in making meaningful change, meaningful change for vulnerable populations. Prior to law school, Carla received her bachelor's degree from Brigham Young University in television journalism and went on to work as a TV sports broadcaster in the Utah market. In 2013, Carla became the first woman in Utah to call a men's professional sport as either the play-by-play or color commentator. That's so cool. I didn't know that you were the first one. That's so cool. cool. The experience greatly opened her eyes on the importance and value of female representation within the community. It was her advocacy for women in sports that led to her receipt of the 2019 Utah Business Magazine's 20 in their 20s award. Carla currently works as a civil litigation attorney for Kirk and McConkie and is a board member for several nonprofits, including Project Embrace and Refugee Soccer. She currently lives in Lehigh with her husband, Daniel, rescue dog, Lily, and recently gave birth to a baby girl named Lucia. That is so awesome. And my family is a very soccer mm-hmm. <laughs> family. My daughter, Whitney, she played for Riverton High School and they won the state championship wow. last wow. year. And then my nine-year-old is super into soccer. And I love that you commentate for soccer. I and that know, you, that cool? That's really cool. I have to learn more about the refugee soccer. That's oh, really yeah. Cool. That would that's... be cool to get involved in. Well, and they're always looking for people and soccer fans. And it's fun time right now with the World Cup going on. There's oh, yeah. so many that's ways to get fun. involved. Yeah, we've watched so a lot fun. of games. It's yeah, been so really we... fun. It's been awesome. Okay, well, we thought we'd give a little summary of the life transitions we're going to talk about today and then dive into your background information. So Carla has several really like compelling an interesting transition. So the first one is her life as a soccer player and, um, we'll get more into that as we go. And then her transition from being a lawyer, public speaker, advocate, and to being a mom. So we're excited to hear about all of those. And then 
also her um, time being a TV personality and leaving that all to go back to school to get her um, law degree. And then her transition to become someone who is an advocate for the vulnerable and advocating, yeah, for the underprivileged. So uh, like, like I said at the first, I mean, a big part of, of course we wanted to have you, but I was like really excited that you said yes. And we kind of wanted to hurry and have you be on for December because we've been thinking a lot about like, what kind of story could we highlight at this time of the year that makes, um, kind of think about like turning outwards. And I think, you know, we think about giving back to others through giving gifts, which is great. And, you know, maybe donating money and donating our time and stuff, but your story is unique and that like, you're donating this wonderful gift of like actually advocating for their lives and their, because we feel like, um, with it being Christmas time in December, we're thinking a lot about, um, Christ and his example. And we've, Chantel and I lately have been talking about what an amazing just advocate he was for the underprivileged. So we feel like your story, Carla, is so relevant and we're just like honored that you would share that with us right now. And we're excited to be able to highlight someone that we feel like is exemplifying that Christ-like example so well. Well, thank you. Thank you. And likewise, I'm honored to be here because I know you've had so many speakers who likewise are advocates in their own communities and in their own sense. Yes. Yep. Thank you. Yeah. Maybe you could just give us a little background of growing up um, as a Colombian American and which is interesting. We were just telling um, Carla, we just interviewed my, my sister-in-law um, yesterday is also from Columbia. So, yeah. So we're excited to hear more. Yeah. So maybe about, yeah. Take, talk about your growing up years and a little bit about your background. Yeah. No, of course. So I, you know, as you mentioned in the bio, I was born in South Jordan, Utah. Uh, I didn't, aside from my family members, Uh, I didn't associate with a lot of other Colombians in that community. I grew up, you know, speaking Spanish and English in the home. But as I started to get older and older, most of the friends that I had spoke English. And so that kind of became like the dominant language. And my Colombian heritage, while it was something that I talked about with my family and we were open about, uh, there were a lot of elements of my culture that I probably just didn't think that much about simply because I wasn't completely surrounded by it in the community. Uh, but fortunately, when I became a teenager, I had the opportunity to train and play with the U-20 Colombian women's national team. And that was such a life-changing experience for me because it brought me back and reminded me of my Colombian heritage and my Colombian culture. It improved my Spanish. Like there were so many elements of it, elements of myself that were always there, but I hadn't taken the time or maybe given it the sort of respect that I should have, and it wasn't until I actually went to Colombia and lived there for a time and played there that I actually became, came to really appreciate my Colombian heritage and appreciate also the sacrifices that uh, my mother and my grandparents had made to be able to come to the United States. I mean, they left what was a very comfortable situation in a country that they loved and where they spoke the language and that it was recognizable to them. And they left that to come to the United States where it was a new culture. And at the time, a brand new language. I mean, my grandparents, they've since passed, but they never learned how to speak English. And so living in the United States posed some challenges, Um, but they were willing to make all of those sacrifices because they were people who thought generations ahead. And they were thinking about uh, what they wanted, different opportunities that they wanted their family members to have generations ahead of time. Uh, And and I myself 
am a beneficiary of those sacrifices. Yeah. Um, and so it, it's interesting, and I feel bad that I didn't really, I, I think, fully appreciate those things until I became a teenager. But that being said, it's greatly impacted the trajectory of my life since then. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, what sure. a cool experience that you played on that Columbia team. Were you able to kind of travel the world and play soccer? I was able to play a lot of soccer, didn't travel much with them. I ended up not making the team. They uh, were preparing a team for World Cup qualifiers. I ended up not making that team, uh, which at the time was like so frustrating because soccer was, you know, that was like my thing. That's what I did. I was, you know, I, I worked so hard and was training so hard and not making that team for World Cup qualifiers was just like devastating at the time. And I remember being in Colombia and crying to my parents, you know, on the phone because I just felt so bad about it. Uh, but again, in hindsight, I look back and I realize that that was a stepping stone for the rest of my life, the path that I would be going. My path wasn't supposed to be playing professional soccer as much as I wanted it to be as a 17-year-old girl. Uh, <laughs> my path was to gain those rich experiences and understanding of uh, the world, of public policy, of poverty, uh, to recognize some of these, uh, you know, really, really important elements of our world and our society, and then be able to use those experiences when I return to the United States, uh, again, for whatever were the next steps in my life. That's really cool. So I don't know, did you play for BYU before that? Is that? Yeah, so I played for BYU afterwards. So around, oh, you were 17. Oh, you were 17. So was this during high school then? That yes. you did that? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, I so didn't I actually a, know. I was a student at that. Bingham High, uh, and then I I was able to go and spend a semester playing with, the, like I said, the U20 team in Cali, wow. Colombia, which was fun because Cali is actually my family's um, home city. Oh, that's And awesome. oh, so wow. it was fun to be able to go there and actually see the place that, like, my mother lived and see the places where my mother grew up. My mother grew up in a town outside of Cali called Palmira, and it was cool to be able to go there and see the school that she went to and... Again, just reconnect with this side of me that had always been there. It was always a part of me, but I, I just never appreciated it or really took the time to appreciate it. That's really yeah. cool. What That's cool really neat that you had that. Yeah. And I love how you're saying that it kind of gave you that um, perspective of the world that, you know, maybe, I mean, that led you to where you are today. So For that's sure. really neat. Yeah. So how many <laughs> siblings did you have? So I have one younger brother. His name's Christian. He's currently serving as an officer uh, in the Navy in, in oh, the cool. USS Portland in San Diego. So, oh, awesome. uh, so it's been fun. He's only a year and a half younger than me, so we've always been very close. It's something I was going to add on, and, and, maybe it, and maybe we'll get to this, is we talk about being interested in advocacy and public policy and immigration. And I think that came from my time playing in Colombia, because I think of one specific story. I think of... So many of the uh, girls that we play with, I remember we were traveling around the country playing different club teams in preparation, just training. And I remember being on a long bus. Um, we were, were coming from a, a city called Buga on a bus ride. And we're driving through and it's so beautiful. Um, in the state, it's known as Del Valle del Cauca, like the state of sugarcane, because it's just so green and there's so many fields. And we're driving through these beautiful green fields and jungles. And I remember to end up talking on this long bus ride with some of my teammates and asking them, like, so what are your goals? Like, what are your dreams? Are, like, what are you hoping to get out of this experience? And I was fully expecting them to say, 
uh, well, I want to be on the national team and I want to play in the World Cup and I want to play in the Olympics, right? Like those are the dreams. Uh, but it was interesting that so many of uh, my teammates said, I want to play soccer in the United States. I want to play college soccer because I know if I play college soccer, I'll be able to get an education at an American university. And again, for me, that was kind of surprising simply because I always saw the World Cup and the Olympics as like the pinnacle. Uh, but for me, I recognize that these girls were looking long term. They were thinking about long after they put the soccer cleats up, what are the things that are going to help benefit my life? And for them, they recognized that it was getting an education. At the time, I had already committed to playing at BYU. I had already signed my letter of intent. So for me, there wasn't like a question if I was going to go to uh if I was going to go to college, because at the time I had already committed. Uh, but in that moment, it made me really appreciate that opportunity, knowing that there were girls that didn't have that, or at the time were still dreaming of that. Um, and so that story, I think, has always stuck with me. I don't know if it says a lot about me necessarily, but it definitely shows, again, how my life changed so drastically within those several weeks. And unfortunately, Due to immigration barriers, almost none of those players were able to come play in the United States. Even oh, though they were playing wow. on a national team and they were clearly, yeah. clearly talented and intelligent women, again, due to immigration barriers, they were unable to do that. Yeah, that's interesting. I think it's so, um, what a cool experience at such a young age yeah. to kind of recognize those things. I think when you're a high school student and you're getting ready for college, you don't even think about obviously people in Columbia wishing they could come to America and go to college. I mean, mm-hmm. and so you were able to see that such a young age and you can just see that this, like your path, you know, of why you're passionate about, you know. Yeah. And to see like that, that education is such a privilege. We do kind of take advantage of that. We can just apply and go just, just because we're here and we're citizens and get a great education, you know, but yeah. Wow. Yeah. That was a really neat story. Thanks for sharing that. Well, and and to add along, you're talking about Christmas and the Christmas season. The weeks that I was there were over Christmas. And so it was really cool, too, to be able to... I was living at the camp with the the other women on the team, and it was cool to be able to celebrate Christmas with them. Uh, All of them were of a different religion than I was, uh, but we were all Christian. And so for us, it was such a bonding moment to be able to celebrate the birth of our Savior around Christmas time, even though... Uh, we had, you know, varying beliefs. It was really great to be able to share that with them. That's so cool. Did Was there different, like, traditions that they did that were new to you? Or were you kind of familiar with it because of your mom? Like, I just wonder, it was probably really neat to get to experience that. Yeah, yeah. So uh, all of my teammates were Catholic. And in the Catholic faith, especially in Latin America, they do what's called a novena in the nine days leading up to Christmas. And it's essentially just like a... Uh, recited prayer. Uh, you can do it anytime during the year, but like I said, typically uh, it's done in the nine days leading up to Christmas. And then they would give like almost like a little devotional based off of that prayer. Uh, and it's all like very Christmas themed and themed around the birth of the Savior. And so for me, I'd never done a novena. I didn't know some of those recited prayers, but they were just so open and having me be a part of it. And I did my best to recite them and I did my best to uh, you know, sing with them and celebrate with them. I would go to their mass on Sunday with them. I we uh, During the Christmas season, a lot of uh, Catholic churches, especially in Colombia, I know they do it here in the United States too, but especially in Colombia, we'll hold like a midweek service, you know, just it's part of the Christmas season. And so I would go with them to that. 
And it was all just because I recognized that this was something that was very important to them. And as my teammates who I loved, I wanted to support them in things that were important to them. And likewise, it was reciprocated because they became very curious about what I believed in or the scriptures that I read or the kind of prayers that I said. And again, it was just so cool to be able to like share those things, not necessarily to convert each other, but just to share what is something that's meaningful to us. And again, I think having the Christmas season makes it so, it magnifies it. It makes it so much bigger because there's already this foundation of like love and peace and this idea that we have reason to celebrate. Mm, That is so neat. Yeah. I think about the experience you got there culturally and then seeing this diversity and like religious beliefs. But like you said, you have also this connecting foundational values. And anyway, that is so neat. And makes me think, wow. I mean, you're like, in a, I got to send my kids. I know somewhere. these are really, these <laughs> are send them out of the awesome United experiences. States. Yeah. That's yeah. really cool. So you mentioned like, so what was your process like? So you played for the national team and then you came and played for BYU. And then what was that transition like being done with that part of your life? The soccer part? Yeah, it was a big transition. You know, my whole life I had always been told like soccer is not your identity. Soccer is not who you are. It's just something you do. But when the day actually comes where you put your cleats up and you graduate and you're done, like that is a big change, especially considering that I had done it my whole life since I was a little girl and I had found success in it. And so there was a lot of me that felt like my success as an individual was dependent on my success on the soccer field. And again, I had been told that that wasn't it, but sometimes your heart feels differently than what you had, what you've always been told. And so that was a big transition for me to finally say, you know what, this chapter of my life is done, but I still have so many more opportunities ahead of me. And it took, it took a little bit of time to get there. Uh, fortunately, I was able to get a job out of college doing TV broadcasts that allowed me to still stay involved with soccer uh, without having to run all the fitness tests. Mm-hmm. But and then I think that helped in my transition too, feeling like I was still involved in the community, like my my passions were still a part of me. Uh, but it takes time when you're changing life chapters. I think it takes time to make those transitions and recognize that you still have a lot of future ahead of you, even when something that was such an integral part of your life ends so abruptly. Hmm. Yeah, that's cool. So was it for Real Soccer? Is that who you you commentated for? Yeah, so I called for their women's team. So if you remember the Utah Royals, the NWSL Mm -hmm. team that was here, I was their color commentator, and then I worked as their public relations manager as well right out of college. And that was such an incredible experience to be able to work um, in professional women's soccer, to stay involved in it, but also see everything that goes on behind the scenes. The people who I worked with at Real Salt Lake and the Utah Royals, as we all kind of worked together as one entity, were incredibly hardworking people. Behind the scenes, I mean, you don't realize, or at least I didn't realize, behind a live sporting event, everything that is going on behind the scenes. There are people that are there since five in the morning getting everything ready, testing everything. We would stay until one or two in the morning afterwards, producing all the content and and getting everything recorded and finished. And there's so many things that are going on behind the scenes by really hardworking people who often don't get a lot of credit for it. Um, And so that was such an eye-opening experience for me too, is now that I've moved off the soccer field, I've come to realize that when I was playing, there were tons of people putting in the work to make it happen. There were tons of people that were putting in the work to make it a meaningful experience, 
not only for those who are playing, but also for those who are watching in the stands. I mean, live sports is a form of entertainment and any form of live entertainment uh, requires a lot of a lot of hands moving in the background. And so it was it was really cool. It was a good transition. Um, but nonetheless, the learning curve was incredibly steep. Oh, I bet. And it was probably, I'm imagining, I mean, that's amazing that you got that job. So did you graduate in broadcast journalism? Is that right? Yes. Or, okay. Yeah. So, so that kind of led you to that. And did you know with that degree that that's what you wanted to do? Like common commentate for soccer? Is that, were those your goals? Yeah. So it wasn't initially when I first went to school, uh, because of my experiences in Columbia, I wanted to study political science and that was originally mm-hmm. my first major, but uh, it, it was hard to work out with the travel schedule. A lot of the classes and a lot of uh, were during practice, were during travel. And so I was kind of, and again, this is another like transitional moment. Like, what am I going to do with my life after college? What, what are these next steps? But in my sophomore year of college, um, as I was playing more and starting to grow in the ranks on the soccer team, I tore my calf muscle. I tore it right off of the bone with the tendon off of my knee. Ooh. Um, and it's actually a very rare injury. I was actually written about in a medical journal <laughs> of all the crazy oh my things. Gosh. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. It, it tore right off. Usually people oh, wow. snap their calf and their Achilles, but I snapped it behind the knee. And as a result, I couldn't walk for six months. Uh, oh, and it was in that time that my assistant coach, uh, coach Chris Watkins, he's now the head coach at Gonzaga women's soccer. But oh, he asked me, you know, Hey, we don't have anyone that's calling the men's soccer games. And it was just a YouTube stream at the time, but he says, we don't have anyone calling the BYU men's soccer games. Do you want to come in and fill into that role? And I said, well, I've never called a soccer game before, but I know the sport. Uh, So yeah, I'll come and I'll do my best. And that was the opportunity that I think really opened my eyes to broadcasting. I had never thought Mm -hmm. about it before, but I really enjoyed calling sporting events. And from there, I was able to you know, get some games under my belt. I applied to be a part of the broadcasting program at BYU, which is an incredible program with incredible professors, uh, thanks to BYU TV and a lot of the uh, networking opportunities that come from BYU TV. And that's how I got involved with it. And so again, it's one of those things where I was so disappointed. I was heartbroken when I tore my calf muscle, just as I was heartbroken when I didn't make the World Cup qualifying team. Uh, But they were all Looking back in hindsight, I recognize that these were all circumstances that gave me new opportunities. I'm not calling them good things. Like, I would never be one to call a bad thing a good thing, but I do think good things came out of it. Right. Well, that's kind of um, when we think about, like, the theme of our podcast is that that comes up a lot where during the transition or during whatever was really hard, of course, it's not something that, like, you wanted or that was going to like you would have welcomed in your life. But looking back on the transitions that are unexpected, some like the involuntary transitions, sometimes we can find beauty in in what ended up happening, even though the event itself was painful and hard to get through. What are the things that we learned and like what opportunities were we led to because of it? So I love that it goes right into our theme so well. And, and you just said it so beautifully. So thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, yeah, from there, from I guess we can maybe talk about what were your plans? Like was law school something that was always on your radar or yeah. Tell us more about that. How did that come about? Yeah. Like I said, I think, I think going into school, I was very involved with like political science and public policy. So law school was always in the back of my head. 
uh, I thought about a lot of those women. I thought about a lot of those women that I played soccer with that never had the opportunity to come to the state. And it made me very interested in immigration law, particularly. I also was interested in it simply because of my own background, knowing that my mother uh, and grandparents had become citizens of the United States when I was very young. And so it was always in the back of my mind because I recognized that it was something very interesting that could affect the lives of a lot of people. Uh, And when I was broadcasting, that was always still there, that I like sports broadcasting. It's fun. It's energetic. You get to travel a lot and go to cool sporting events. But there was always this thought in the back of my mind that I want to do more to help people in my community, the people in my life. And I'm not saying you can't do that with broadcast. Uh, There's a lot of ways you can advocate for people through broadcast and through creating a brand for yourself that allows you to help people. Uh, But for me personally, everyone's journey is different. And for me personally, I recognize that there was something more that I needed to do. The problem, I wanted to help people, but I didn't know how. I wanted to advocate, but I didn't know exactly where to start. I wanted to change systems in our society that hurt people, but I wasn't entirely sure how those systems even operated. And so I felt kind of overwhelmed. How do I get involved in advocacy that's meaningful, right? I can go you know, sign up and volunteer here or there or give money. But is that going to create change? Maybe it will, maybe it won't. I mean, there's so many questions. And I think so many people want to help in the community and they want to help their neighbors and they want to help vulnerable and underprivileged populations, but they don't know where to start. And that's where I was. And so I decided that I would take the LSAT and I would go to law school so that I could understand how our systems of society worked. And my hope is that if I understand how the systems work, everything from our infrastructure to our lawmaking to public health to, I mean, the whole gambit, if I could recognize how those systems work or even get a glimpse into how those work or a glimpse into how change works, then perhaps I can actually help people. And fortunately, law school was the answer to that. Again, everybody's path is different and everyone finds their way to advocate for others differently. But for me understanding how laws are made, how laws affect people, uh, and how laws change through good leadership or through good law was the way that I personally found fulfillment in helping others in our community. Wow. That's really cool. I didn't know like what kind of led you to that. And that is, and it makes so much sense. You know, I think often we think of lawyers, you know, more of the profession, but that makes so much sense to understand the systems and the laws. So that you can change Yeah, how it are you going to be, it. that's a, such an amazing way to be able to understand how change can be made in society. So that's really cool. Thanks. Well, and it's interesting because yeah. right now I have a job at a law firm working as like a civil litigator working with corporate work. So someone would look at me and they'd say, Carla, you're not doing public interest work. You're not like working with vulnerable communities. Most of my clients are like big corporations or hospitals. So someone could look at me and say, no, you're just full of talk because look, the job you currently have works usually with, you know, larger corporations and you're doing more of that traditional law that you see like on TV. Uh, But there's more to it. That's my job and I love it and I work with great people and I like, I love the clients that I work with. But again, there's that foundation of just understanding uh, so you can help in other capacities. It does, you don't have to help people and advocate for people in your job. You can advocate in so many other ways. Maybe you do it in your job, but you don't have to do it that way. And likewise, you don't have to go to law school. Uh, it's just giving an example of 
When we take the time to understand and learn other people, learn about systems, we empower ourselves to help others. Right. When you have that foundation that's so valuable and you're so young, how old are you? I'm 27. Yeah, oh my wow. gosh. That's kind of to say because I'm starting to feel a little, I'm starting to like as I approach 30, which I know 30 isn't old. It's not old. But, but it's like, like a milestone. I hope that I, yeah, was it's like a milestone. Yeah, You're so young to have done everything that you've done already. Like, I, um, anyway, I was trying to tell Shinto because I'm like, I think she's in her upper 20s, but oh man, yeah. she, but can that be right? Because she's done so many things. You oh, know? You're, so, you're so sweet for anyway. saying, like I said, I'm getting my 30s and it's like, wow, I feel like I just turned 20. Like, you know, a yeah. year or two ago. So. Yeah, it goes by it really, goes, really does go by fast. So at yeah. what point during this law school did you get married and have a baby? Oh, yeah. Was yeah. that? Yeah. So I got married in my undergrad um, uh, to Daniel, has, who's Lindsay's cousin. I got married to him in my undergrad, but then we didn't have a baby until this year. And so until my first year of practice, um, okay. I was actually pregnant when I took the bar exam to be licensed last year. Oh, well. it, or, la, yeah, last year. See, it's one of those things that I feel like it wasn't that long ago. Uh, yeah. But it's been a wild year of <laughs> graduating from law school, getting a job, uh, becoming licensed, taking the bar exam, and then having a baby. Having a baby. And wow. fortunately, the, wor- the, the firm I work for has been really great and really supportive with all of this because that is a life transition. Well, you two know having children is such <laughs> a transition and life-changing experience. And then to try to balance that with... Being a lawyer and being an advocate is uh, sometimes it feels like a real juggling feat. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. Especially you said your baby's seven months. Is that what you said? Yeah, yeah, she's wonderful. Yeah, but yeah, you know those seven month old they you can't leave a you can't let them be for too long. You know. No, yeah. and you don't get a lot of sleep. <laughs> she and... is so adorable. You should. I, I know. I, I, I have seen oh, you. Oh, you maybe have Instagram. seen. Yeah, yeah she's, she's like, the yeah. cutest little baby. No, but yeah, baby, that yeah. and that's a really fun age. Actually, I was. Look, I was telling you earlier, I was doing baby books for my kids. I'm like six and seven months because their personality is coming out. They're so sweet and cute. They're not walking yet, so they're not too destructive yet. It's just a really fun age. Yeah, and she has a big personality. She does. Oh, cute. I've only met her a couple times, but she is darling. (laughs) Thank you. So, yeah. So so that's just a transition in itself, obviously, becoming a mother. But at the same time, you know, starting at a firm, taking the bar you know, becoming your first year yeah. of being yeah. a lawyer. And, that's... and working in an industry where there's just not a lot of women. And mm-hmm. so, like yeah. I said, the firm that I'm at has been super supportive and super great. Uh, but just in general, in law firm industry, there's not a ton of women. And there's even fewer women that have young children. And so kind of navigating that it uh, was a little hard for me at first. Um, at the time, I was the only female attorney in my office. Um, and so going to the partners and saying like, look, I, I'm pregnant. Uh, I I'm really sick. I, I'm going to have a baby. I have to take leave. Like for me, those were scary things and they shouldn't be. Cause again, they were super supportive and encouraging. They even threw me a baby shower. Right. So like, (laughs) yeah, so I shouldn't have been worried, but we grow up, uh, you know, worried. I I think as women, I think it's normal to grow up worrying, how is this going to affect my career? How is this going to affect how my coworkers see me? How is it going to affect promotion or pay? Um, for sure. And, and those are all thoughts that like went through my brain, you know, and, and maybe that sounds selfish or bad to say, but that's the truth. I'd be lying if I told you that those thoughts didn't cross my mind, um, when I was pregnant and, you worry about those things. Like I no, said, it, it fortunately yeah. hasn't been an issue, but there are questions that I think so many working mothers have to face yeah. uh, that yeah. maybe we don't give enough, enough discussion to. 
Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And for sure, um, I feel like it's getting better that way. But it has um, put women at a disadvantage for sure in in the workplace and stuff. Because, you know, in the past, if if companies aren't as willing to accommodate with that, um, it's it's kind of an easy way to push women aside and, and, yeah, make it harder for them to advance and stuff. But, um, yeah, so I can totally see why that would feel vulnerable and, and a hard thing. But. But I'm glad it's really encouraging to hear that they were so, so great to work with and stuff. So I think we're moving in the right direction. I think workplaces, and that includes law firms, are starting to recognize that if they want to retain talent, that they have to be accommodating and encouraging for uh, women and men who want to start families. And so, like I said, I've had a good experience. Unfortunately, I've heard of bad experiences other places. Utah's pretty good as far as the legal market, but I've heard of places in other states where it's really hard to, to have a family and be a hardworking lawyer and get work done and meet the demands of clients. Yeah, that's interesting. That, yeah. I, I admire you a lot because um, you're working at the law firm and the advocacy work that you're doing. So you've obviously really mastered how to manage your time. So that's very uh, admirable. I don't know if it's that or if I just have a super, super supportive and helpful husband, which that's, that's also true. Daniel's helpful. really awesome. Yeah. Yeah. He is like the nicest guy. I mean, just a good, good person. I honestly couldn't do it without him. We, we, we go as far as syncing our calendars on work meetings and everything. So he knows when I have a work meeting, you know, Carla will watch the baby and vice versa. If I have a call or a hearing or I'm taking depositions, he knows uh, to take the baby at that time. And it's, That's again, awesome. it's a juggling act, but I couldn't do it without him be able to have yeah. his help and support. And he's always been there for me since the very beginning to say, look, we can have a baby together, but I still want you to be you. And I still want you to do things that are meaningful to you. And we will be there to support you the entire time. And, and he has been right. And so, yeah, yeah. that's that, really cool. It makes it a lot easier to be able to have a co-parent, uh, in your endeavors. Yeah, and I think about how supportive, like you're saying, he's been because, so, you know, you got married during your undergrad and then you decided to go to law school. And I feel like, um, you know, just talking about the dynamic with men and women and equality and everything, I'm not saying all men or even many men or or whatever would discourage their wife from going back. But I I do, I realistically, there probably are some that maybe would be like, because he'd have to make sacrifices. Yeah, because he'd have to make those sacrifices. I mean, more often, especially I think in our culture, we see the man going back for his master's or PhD or whatever. And, and not that there's anything wrong with that either. Like that, if those are your goals and that's the way that it works, but I think it's really cool that he supported you in those dreams and it sounds like supported you really well in it. Yeah. But it didn't, it didn't cause a wedge in your relationship. It feels like to me that it's brought you even closer. So yeah, we've had to work. No, you're completely right because you're right. We both have to make sacrifices Um, but making those sacrifices together has brought us closer. It's taught us how to work together. It's taught us how to prioritize what's most important for things in our lives for both of us. And so we are really close. I would say right now, trying to balance work for both of us and a baby, you know, it's the craziest our life has ever been, but I would say our marriage is the strongest it's ever been right now, uh, simply because we you kind of get down to what is the things that's most important and we're able to make those sacrifices. So again, I, I'm so grateful for the opportunities that I have, but I also recognize that I've had a support system behind me and that makes a big difference. Yeah. yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. I love that. That's a good definition of 
marriage, like I think, you know, sacrificing for each other, meeting up together to prioritize what's most important to both of you and then working together. So that's awesome. Yeah, that's a really good example of it for sure. Cool. That's great. Well, um, maybe we can talk now, go in, into your, um, unless you have other stuff to say about the transitions we've talked about, but going into being an advocate and your TED Talk and how that all started. Yeah. So when I was in, so I'll give a little background first for my TED Talk. So my TED Talk was speaking on the asylum seeking process in the United States and the differences between asylum seekers and refugees, because those are two terms that I frequently hear uh, between politicians, even lawyers, uh, that they get mixed up. And while there are so many similarities between refugees and asylum seekers, there are some key differences in the legal process. So that's what I gave my TED Talk on. My TED Talk comes originally from the work that I did on the U.S.-Mexican border during my 2L year of law school. Um, in my second year of law school, I went down to the border, and this was right before COVID. This was in the semester before COVID and the world kind of shut down. But I was able to work with asylum seekers in preparing them for their credible fear interviews. And that was something that I had never heard of before going down there uh, to the detention center. And the detention centers are a lot like prisons. They have the same sort of security of a prison. Uh, there's you know big barbed wire fences and security guards and all the same protocols as a prison. And so it's, for lack of a better words, we call the detention center a prison. It's, ref it's frequently referred to as the baby jail because it's a prison where it's full of children and babies and, and I mean, and, and adults as well, but um, that adds a different dynamic to it as well. And they give them clo different clothes to wear and, and take a lot of their possessions when they come to the border. So again, for lack of a better words, it's very, very much like a prison in these detention centers. And when I was there, I learned a lot about the asylum process and then the asylum experience. Uh, when people come... Can you... Sorry, can I... Oh, yeah, of course. Can you describe or just um, give us the definition? That I know you mentioned on your TED Talk of the difference between a refugee and an asylum seeker and even a immigrant. immigrant. Yeah, yes. I think you talked about those three in the TED Talk, which I thought was really helpful up front. So we thought, yeah, if you could explain that, that'd be yeah, great. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So... A refugee is probably the term that people in our society are the most familiar with. And a refugee is someone who flees their home country. They're forced to flee. They're forced to flee their home country for the sake of their lives or the lives of their children. Uh, and they can either be fleeing natural disaster, government oppression, gang violence, anything that would force someone to leave their home country because they're no longer safe and seek safety in, in another country, such as the United States, is a refugee. An asylum seeker is very similar to a refugee in that he or she is also fleeing some sort of danger. Uh, but the difference is that the United States government has not yet evaluated their claims for danger, their claims for fleeing, and as such, they haven't been granted the refugee status. And so asylum seekers have to go through an extra legal process for the United States to evaluate their claim and decide, is the reason that you're leaving a credible reason for coming here to the United States? And that kind of goes into the credible fear interview that I went to go prepare uh, the asylum seekers for is that is the interview where the U.S. government decides and evaluates that claim and says, OK, should we grant you the status of a refugee or should we let you start the legal process of looking for the status of refugee? And so my job was to help prepare the women and children. Uh, there's a men detention. There's a detention center for men, but I didn't work there. I worked only with women and children. Um, because they're separated at the border. Oh, they separate them. Okay. 
Okay, I didn't know that. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, so men and women are separated at the border. Sometimes families, sometimes children are separated. Boys are separated uh, depending on age. Uh, as they start to get older, like teenagers are separated from their mothers mm-hmm. and taken to different detention centers. So I only worked with women and then children that were young or if they had children that were girls. Um, and my job was to help prepare them for this interview and tell them, look, this is what a uh, immigration officer is going to look for. They're going to look to see, did you try to contact law enforcement? They're going to look to see, did you try to, when you're fleeing oppression, did you try to help yourself in, in, in this way? Did you move to a different city? Did you seek asylum in another country first? There's going to be different parameters or questions that they're going to look for to determine if your reason for coming to the United States is a legitimate one as far as the refugee process goes. That's very different from traditional immigration, where traditional immigrants voluntarily choose to come to the United States or to move to a different country, uh, whether it be for employment opportunities or because their family's living there. Either way, they're not forced to you know, flee for the safety of their lives. It's more they voluntarily are choosing to do so. And that's when we get into discussions of immigration via visas. Like I said, family visas and employment visas are the most common. Uh, there's, there's a bunch of different types of visas. Immigration law is like crazy complex and there's all these different elements to it and I can't keep up with any of it. But, <laughs> but that's kind of your more traditional immigration and how that varies from refugees and asylum seekers. The difference as well is typically because it's a voluntary decision, um, and, and again, I use the term voluntary relative. Uh, I'm talking about as opposed to fleeing for your lives. That's what I mean by voluntary. But uh, a lot of the refugees, because it's kind of a fleeing for their lives situation, usually come with very little. And so they don't have legal paperwork. They don't have visas. They don't have documentation. They haven't had time to meet with a lawyer because a lot of the clients that I met with fled in the middle of the night. And so that's also uh, makes it a little different than traditional immigration processes where we expect, at least in the United States, to have certain paperwork or visa work or green cards, uh, which are literally green. That's why they call them green cards. People ask me that all the time. Um, But and so it makes it slightly different. But the, the problem and I talk about this in my TED talk is that we categorize all these groups of people exactly the same. We refer to immigrants who voluntarily come to the United States, whether with proper paperwork or not, uh, in the same categories as refugees who come to this country fleeing persecution because they have to. And then we classify all of these groups in the same category as asylum seekers who are likewise fleeing for their lives. Maybe they don't want to leave their home country, but they have to. uh, And now they're getting their claims evaluated by the U.S. government. And so my TED Talk kind of goes over what are... What are the differences between these three groups? But most importantly, how can we stop putting such large groups of people that have very different different definitions and different backgrounds, how do we stop putting them all into the same group or at least into the same discussions? Hmm. Yeah, that's really great. So this might be a dumb question, but... <laughs> no, no, so no. And you've already probably kind of made this clear, but I just want to make sure. So refugees, the government has already evaluated their situation and kind of like legitimize that. So it's easier for them to get across the border. Is that right? So would refugees be in these detention? Was it detention centers? Did I say that right? Mm-hmm. Detention centers, or is it mostly, do they move through pretty quickly? And then the asylum seekers are stuck here kind of waiting. Is that, it, 
In general, okay. yes. In general, refugees, because their claims have already been evaluated and the U.S. has already determined that, yes, this person is a refugee who's fleeing for a very credible reason. And so they get processed a lot quicker. Now, there's a lot of issues as well with the refugee legal process and how do we move towards citizenship? How do we move towards future um, different changes in status? Uh, that's probably a discussion for another day. We could talk about this for hours. Yeah. Uh, sure. But it is different. And then the asylum process really gets bogged down and is a much slower process because the U.S. Okay. has to go in and evaluate those claims. And like I said, a credible fear interview is the first step. But passing your credible fear interview, which so few people do, passing your credible fear interview doesn't mean you're now a refugee. It just means you can now start the legal process. You could hire an mm. attorney. You can now start creating a case. And then with time... It's typically four to five years, so such a long period of time, oh, wow. you can make the argument in front of a judge that I should be granted refugee status because of my situation. And so it's a long and arduous process for wow. asylum seekers to be granted that in the United States. And the entire time they have to stay in these Yeah, are they at those centers. places the whole four to five years? Or Typically, other... no. Typically, okay, after good. I was like, what? Yeah. No, and oh. they do spend a long time in the detention centers, okay. unfortunately. And COVID made it so much harder because things just had to move so much slower. Mm. Uh, and there weren't the same amount of volunteers or people that were working pro bono preparing for credible fear interviews. COVID really, really hurt uh, the asylum-seeking system. Mm. Uh, it was already slow to begin with, and it made it even slower. But... That being said, after a credible fear determination has been made, if the individual has passed, then they're typically allowed uh, to be free. They have to be monitored, and there's rules that they have to come in and check in several times. There's a bunch of security rules. Uh, but typically after that, asylum seekers are allowed to leave the detention center. And okay. then if they get a negative determination, then they're deported back to their home country. And it's a pretty high percentage that do get deported back, right? I think you said it in the TED Talk. What, less, what Can you remind me? Yeah, it depends on the jurisdiction. Uh, okay. But depending on the jurisdiction, less than 14% will pass the credible fear interview. So wow. that's not even saying they'll be granted a refugee status. That's just to say right. they'll pass and can start the process while a majority yeah. um, are deported. And a lot of that has to do with different laws and executive orders that were put into place um, during the Trump administration that made it a lot more difficult for asylum seekers to be granted status. So, yeah, did, was it easier before he, he, I mean, put some of those executive orders in place were more getting through? Yes. Actually, oh. prior to the Trump administration, a majority of asylum seekers uh, were allowed to start the asylum-seeking process. They did p oh. pass the credible fear interview. They got what's called a positive determination. Uh, but there were several changes, and and like I said, now we're getting deep into like the weeds of immigration law, but there were several changes about what qualified someone for um, asylum in the, United, in the United States. And those changes drastically cut that number in half. Uh, a majority of the people who seek asylum in the United States are fleeing some sort of gay or domestic violence. That's a majority of it. Um, sometimes we see political violence from governments. Uh, especially like in Venezuela. I know there's quite a few Venezuelan asylum seekers that are able to make it through the process. But a majority of people are fleeing because they've been targeted by some sort of gang or they um, are in danger, some sort of domestic violence. And those two categories were removed as potential reasons to seek 
and gain refugee status in the United States. And so when those two categories were removed, it suddenly became much, much harder for people fleeing persecution to be granted asylum status uh, because now they had to prove that they were being persecuted uh, as a member of a protected class as opposed to just being a victim of violence. And so that's much harder to prove. You know, it's, it's mm-hmm. easier for me to come and say, I'm a victim of violence. It's much harder to say I'm a victim of violence because of my political affiliation or my race or my religious affiliation or gender. That's much harder to prove. And there's a lot more questions that have to come in. Well, what makes you think it was because of your race? What makes you think it was because of your gender? What makes you think it was because of your political affiliation? And you just have to provide so much more evidence. And again, a lot of the people that are coming to our borders don't have extensive paperwork and evidence and photographs. You know, as a trial lawyer, we come to court with thousands and thousands of documents to prove our case. But people who are coming to the border don't typically have that. It's usually just word of mouth. Do you remember an experience? Sometimes I would be talking with them and they'd say, oh, yeah, I didn't even know that experience was relevant. Or I didn't even know that that person saying, you know, ABC is relevant. And that was part of my job as their advocate was to say, no, you need to tell the immigration officer about your experience because that's one of the things they're going to be looking for. Wow, it's interesting. I was thinking, too like people that kind of get the refugee status without having like really quickly probably I'm wondering is okay for instance there's a war going on and so Ukraine if people are leaving Ukraine it's like they are automatic are they kind of automatically refugees because you know they're coming from a war torn country but if there's these individual families coming in that aren't it's more of an individual thing yeah asylum seekers and the refugees are more of a group of people where you there's already proof that there's political unrest or a war or even a natural disaster where they need to flee. Yeah. And the government has verified it. Yeah. And so, so it's almost like mm-hmm. it's these smaller like families or a mother mm-hmm. and a child or very small groups trying to get this site. You know, they don't have these proof. They don't have. Yeah. It's very fact specific. Yeah. Yeah. It's... It was like the example you gave in your Ted talk of the woman. And so I think for me to understand to maybe like listener. So basically for her example, she was, um, fleeing an abusive boyfriend, but she tried, like she tried in her own community, but he just kept following her. And, and so I'm, I'm assuming that these countries and communities that don't have the programs for protection is that, that then they feel like the, their last chance for, um, safety is to come to the U S. So it's, it's not like she wasn't trying within her own community. I mean, I, I'm sure. paraphrasing and maybe not getting it completely correct, but is that the majority of the situations you see? I'm sure that it's not like they're like, oh, I've got an abusive situation. I'm heading to the yes, U.S. Like, I'm yeah. sure there's many things that they've probably maybe exhausted their resources. And unfortunately, like a lot of those countries probably just don't have um, the systems that we have in place to protect people yeah. in abusive situations and things For like sure. that. Yeah. No, you nailed okay. it right on the head. In general, a lot of the clients that I met with were exactly how you've described, where they tried a lot of the clients I met with didn't want to leave their home country. That's where their families yeah. were. That's where their culture was. That's where their home, where they grew up. They're leaving because they have to, because they're afraid that something bad will happen to their life or to someone else's. And so, again, that's one of the things that uh, immigration officers can ask is, did you, did you try to talk to your government? Did you try to talk to law enforcement? And almost all the clients that I met with, the answer was yes. Either we wanted to talk to the police or we wanted to talk to the government, but often there was corruption within those law enforcement groups. Mm. A lot of the law enforcement groups in like very small rural rural towns 
Uh, there, unfortunately, can be corruption within those groups. Um, and so a lot of that was the issue. Again, governments not being able to provide the same sort of protection for individuals, especially in rural communities, especially, again, very vulnerable, poor populations. Um, and so you're right. A lot of it, and, and I think people forget about that sometimes, is a lot of asylum seekers, majority of asylum seekers didn't want to leave. Uh, and they didn't want right. to come to the U.S. to be put in a detention center and to have all their possessions taken away from them. They didn't want to travel hundreds of miles by bus with their children to an unknown location, not knowing what was going to happen next. Like, you know, it's it's such a sad situation. And sometimes I think, and, and I'm speaking just society in general, sometimes I think we overlook just the amount of heartache and sadness that has to occur for someone to choose to leave everything that they recognize, choose to leave their family, uh, and come to an unknown place for their safety. Yeah, I think when you mentioned that in your TED Talk, the importance of letting these, like, to listen to their stories. And I think, Mm -hmm. I mean, from the very beginning of this podcast, that is the whole message, is if you have, if you take the time to listen to someone's story, you can't help but love them or feel for them or, or have some empathy for them. For sure. And so I thought that part was... I mean, obviously, kind of the main point of your whole TED Talk was we need to listen to these people's stories to understand them instead of judging them um, and and being quick to say, we don't want refugees here. They're coming, you know, we don't want them in our country and whatever. If you don't even know them and you've got this up close and personal experience listening to these stories right from that, it's amazing. I mean, Mm -hmm. and you can see why you would want to come back from that experience and try to help and try to make change. Right. I was going to say, especially considering that we have asylum seekers in our own community here. So I went to the border and I heard these stories, but the message that I'm trying to get across to people is there are asylum seekers and refugees and immigrants that come, you know, via the immigration process in our communities who each have stories. And it's so easy to just group large groups of people together and say, this is what's happening in our country. When the reality is they're each individual stories. And that's part of our job is to listen and to speak with them and to better understand uh, their situations, even within our community. Right. I was just thinking about kind of the misconceptions that we have as society about the issue. And I think of one of the big ones is we, we often hear is like, well, they just need to go back to their own countries and make that better. But I think what you're telling me and I, what we're learning, and I have to admit, like, I probably didn't know very much about this issue and I feel like I'm learning so much from you, but like they've tried and it's their life. Like this is their, then it's this dire situation. So, um, like you said, they they love their communities. They, it's not like they wanted to leave, but it's easy to say for us, it's so easy. We're so privileged. And I know sometimes people get triggered by that, but we are like, just this, this conversation is bringing that back so much that we just take it take for granted the fact that these protections are all just available to us so easily. And, you know, if we were in an abusive situation, all we would have to do is go to the law. And I know actually, even in our communities, it's not always cut and dry easy, but it's a lot more. I mean, we, we don't have to feel like we're gonna have to flee the country. We, we know that there's somewhere we could go. There's women's shelters, there's safe places. I'm sure these communities don't have those things for these people. Anyway, I I just love this this perspective and the conversation because I feel like this is not something that we hear about and it's I understand you know I understand that there's a lot of different ways to look at it but um when we were hearing about the changes that were made 
okaying people to come or, you know, the changes that were made, like you said, through the Trump administration and stuff. I just don't think that many of us, me included, understood what, why, like, what were those things that were made? We just knew that it was getting more strict and that there was a lot of people suffering at the border, but we didn't really, at least I didn't, maybe other people knew, but but probably more people knew, but this is so like enlightening to me to hear because it, it just helps me, you know, helps us understand what's going on in the broader level, but also in the individual level too. So yeah, and it makes me think, like at the beginning, we were kind of talking about comparing some of this to Christmas and what Christ would do. And I feel like the whole, like, Christ seeks out the one. So if we're yeah. grouping these people, like, oh, all these people want to be in our country and they bring crime or drugs or however you want to, like, you know, group to them together and them, categorize right? it. But if we're looking at them each as individuals with their own stories and how they're different and they're, and if, and if we don't take time to listen and learn about these stories, then we can't be as empathetic. We can't know how to help, you know, and that's what Christ did is reach out to the one and to, to each individual. And I think that yeah, is really a cool part of your, your journey and your Ted talk and a good message that came across from that. Yeah. Thank definitely. you. No, I completely agree. And you're right. Jesus was the example of the ultimate advocate and never grouped people together and saw people for their individual circumstances and judged people based on their heart. Uh, and so you're, you're right. And I, I think about one of Jesus's nicknames. He has many, he goes by, I shouldn't say nicknames. He goes by many names. One of the many names he goes by is advocate. And so he is our advocate with the father. And so if we want to be more like him, then it only makes sense that we would be our, an advocate for other people as well. Hmm. Yeah. I love yeah. That. And I can't even imagine some of the stories and the heart heartache and heartbreak you know yeah, just the tears awful. that you've that's being really there. hard yeah being there it was awful. do you feel like I mean I'm sure it was probably traumatic for you to see people in that situation I yeah. just to experience that I yeah I I went to therapy I actually went to oh yeah yeah I was actually gonna ask that because <laughs> yeah. I'm sure you're trying to help I mean you're giving him them this, these tools to try to you know get the asylum they're seeking but you are in control you don't get to decide which yeah. ones you want to let in. And like, and you talk about in your Ted talk, you're not allowed to hug them only shake their hands. And that would be so heartbreaking to me. If I saw a mother, wow, a mother crying or a child crying and not being able to like comfort them would be really hard. Yeah, yeah. no. And, and that's exactly it is there's a human element to being with people and hearing their stories. And again, hearing of all the horrible things that they've been through and then seeing these young children who are crying and it breaks your heart and feel like you can't do anything for them is the hardest thing. A majority of the clients in that detention center that we got deported, right? And so Mm. even though it wasn't my fault, there's a little part of you that feels like, could I have done something more? You know, I don't know what's going to happen to these people now that they're going back to the country that they're trying to flee from. Um... And so you definitely leave with a lot of complex thoughts. I think oh, I, I think advocating and serving underprivileged populations is such an important work, but the emotions associated with it are very, very complex, very deep. Mm-hmm. I had a lot of um, like uh, vicarious trauma, which is essentially where someone else experiences trauma, but you feel it. And you take a lot of that trauma onto you. I had a lot of survivor's guilt because at the end of my time working there, I got on a plane and I went home. I went home to my nice husband in our warm home. You know, like I went back to my good life, my blessed life where 
I had food on the table. Again, I had, I had a place to rest my head at night. I knew that I was safe. I was surrounded by family members who loved me. And like, even though there's nothing wrong with that, and I don't need to apologize for those things, I came home knowing that there were women and children who didn't have that. There were women and children who are no better than me, who didn't have those sort of privileges, that didn't have those sort of blessings. And you feel guilty, right? And again, it's not about me. It's about them. But you do come home and you realize, wow, like, what did I do to get so lucky? Because again, the women and children in that center were no better than I am. They were, you know, they're no better people than I am. And they deserve safety. And they deserve that same sort of love that, again, I was so lucky to be able to have. And so definitely went to therapy for quite a bit. Definitely had like little flashbacks frequently um, of my time there. Yeah, if you learn their story and then find out they're being sent back, you know exactly what they're going back to. Yeah, yeah. That's And so exactly the story it. itself is traumatic, but also knowing, okay, they have to go back to that situation that they were trying to flee from. And I, yeah, that. Yeah, I can't imagine. It'd be really hard. <laughs> yeah. And um, I kind of like that you brought up that, like, I think that we think about advocacy, and it is so admirable, but, but oftentimes you know, we kind of put these people like you or like others that we see on this pedestal and just think, wow, they're so amazing. And this must just be the most rewarding work and stuff. But to you or for for you to explain this to us, like it's hard, you know, it's hard work to put yourself in those situations with these people. Um, yeah, yes. I'm sure you feel the rewards of it when, when things go well and when you see the fruits of your labor and stuff, but to, to, I mean, you're taking a lot on, I guess is what I'm saying. And I think it's important for us to remember that too, is like the people that are the advocates, that's, that's hard work and, and really noble. And I'm sorry that you had to absorb some of that trauma. Cause I would, I'm, I know I would be the same. It would be so hard not to, like you yeah. care about these people and you've seen them and their stories. And well, I appreciate that. So. I appreciate that. We're trying to change. And I say, we, I say anybody that advocates for underprivileged populations, you know, you're trying to make what are called generational changes. And that's going to be really, really hard for the individual, but also for those that are just trying to help in any yeah. way. The good, the great good news is of all of this is that you can start really small, you know, and that's what I'm always trying to tell people is you don't have to go to law school because people are always like, wow, it's great that you went yeah. to law school and that you went and served on the border. And it's like, it was a great experience, but you don't have to do that to help out. You know, you can take it in little pieces is what I always tell people. Right. Yeah. Maybe you could give us some ideas of where to start. If we, you know, if our listeners and us, we want to try to make a generational change, we want to make, you know, do something to help and advocate. Where can we start? Yeah. So I think a great place to start is just in your local neighborhoods and communities. And I know we hear that all the time. Like that's such a cliche, but it's true. The reason we hear it all the time, because that is the place to start is in your local neighborhoods and communities. But a lot of us, perhaps some of us that come from affluent neighborhoods, sometimes look at our own neighborhood, our own communities and think, "Mm, is that the place to start? So what I always suggest to people more specifically is go to your local city. And from your city website, you can find different resources, different organizations, food banks, service projects. I mean, fill in the blank. You can find a lot of things from your city website. And if there's not a lot there, call the city up. Make a quick phone call and say, hey, I want to get involved in helping our community and helping our city, helping. I know there are you know, probably people in our community and in our city that need help. How or where can I get involved? Most likely that's a really good place to start. 
The second thing, and this one I get mixed reviews on, get involved in politics. And I'm not talking about like campaigns and getting people elected. I'm talking about get involved in what actual policies that people are pursuing or initiating. Um, whether you support your you know, representative or not, as far as your vote goes, find out what is he or she doing. Go to those meetings. Ask, what are you doing to help whatever group it is that you want to help? So for me, I focus a lot on refugees, immigrants, asylum seekers. Um, I recently have gotten involved in advocacy with the LGBTQ community, but there's a ton of different communities that you can get involved in. Um, maybe you are passionate about public health. Maybe, and granting access to healthcare or access to insulin um, is an example. Maybe you're passionate about access to justice, right? Like access to, to law enforcement, access to legal representation. Whatever it is that you are passionate about or that you think there is an issue, maybe you want access to food, access to, I mean, the list goes on and on. Education, whatever it is that you are passionate about, go to those meetings, get in contact, become friends with your local representatives. I know that sounds kind of crazy because... You talk about putting people on pedestals. I think we look at our local politicians as like people on pedestals. They're kind of like minor celebrities because we know their names and we know everything about them. But it's actually not that hard to become friends with them. All you have to do is like go meet them and go talk to them. And then you become friends and then they invite you to meetings and panels. And again, even if they're not from the political party or you didn't vote for them, like get to know them and then you can be an influence for good in their ear and likewise you know, kind of put them in the hot seat a little bit. So that's the second thing I would yeah. say is get involved in politics and for your representatives. Um, and then ask around. This is my third thing. Like, it's get on social media, get on Facebook, and just say, hey, I'm really interested in, uh, you know, access to health care for children. H how do I, anybody out there know any organizations or groups? And I assure you that you will get at least 10 comments. From people saying, oh, yeah, I work for this organization. Or, yeah, this organization does this, etc. I, I mean, so many things. I put a post out there, not about getting involved, but just about how uh, period poverty is something that's, like, I'm learning more and more about. And it's just shocking to me that so many girls in Utah don't have access to feminine hygiene products. And I got, like, 10 comments from people saying, you should get involved with the period project. You should get involved with the period project. And so those are just oh, no. examples of like, if you put it out there that you're interested in something, people will tell you where and how to get involved. And mm -hmm. at that point, that's the hard work. All you have to do now is make a phone call or send an email and say, hey, I'm interested in the work that your nonprofit does. I'm interested in the work that your campaign does or that your side hustle does, whatever. Um, how can I get involved? And those are like tiny ways that you can get involved in your community that costs no money and just requires maybe like a few emails or phone calls or in attending a meeting. Yeah. yeah that's really great that's advice. That's great. Yeah. And I mean, sometimes, yeah, just using the resources of the people that we know and can also save us a ton of time just going straight to social media or wherever else. Cause we probably have a lot more people that are interested in what we're interested in too. Yeah. We just don't know it. So and you that's know, really and, cool. And the great thing is it affects your community, right? So I think it's so great that organizations and big groups travel across the world and build schools and do cool things. And that's awesome. Like I'm not, I'm not downgrading that at all, but it's like, sometimes that's overwhelming. The idea of donating yeah. thousands of dollars and traveling to another continent is like, wow, I got to plan months in advance for this. Right. And it just becomes a little too overwhelming. 
but but just getting involved in your community just takes an hour or two a week or an hour or two a month, however much you want to get into it. And it doesn't feel so overwhelming, but it still makes just as much of a difference. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. And then you can also, I mean, like you said, it's awesome to give back to people far and wide, but I think it is cool to feel like you're building up something within your own community as well. I agree. So I really agree neat. completely. Um, another thing you said in the Ted talk that I really loved, um, I wrote it down. I don't know if I got it exactly right word for word, but you said you don't have to help asylum seekers by becoming a lawyer or going to the border. You can help by learning about them, which we've talked about, but then also denouncing hateful speech. So I wanted to maybe talk just a little bit more about that. Um, yeah, maybe you can expand on that a little bit. I know you talked about it in the Ted talk, but for sure. So I think of hateful speech, I think presents itself in multiple ways. There is just the direct racial slur. There is just a direct attack on someone. Uh, And that's very evident that like, that is bad, that is hateful. But then there's also rhetoric that I think kind of beats around the bush, but gets the same message. And I think that rhetoric is actually more dangerous sometimes because sometimes it flies under the radar. Sometimes people hear it and they don't recognize that what is being said is actually hateful. And that's what I hear a lot when it comes to immigration talk is I don't hear people that often, you know, saying horribly ugly racial things about immigrants. Rather, you hear little uh, little pieces of rhetoric that suggest, you know, you had mentioned crime or drugs or during COVID. I saw a lot of people talking about like immigrants are bringing COVID into the country. I saw that a lot. Um, and, and they make it sound like we're just stating facts. We're not, we're not using hateful rhetoric here. We're just stating facts of what's happening. But underneath, if you peel back the layers, you recognize that this is nothing more than just xenophobia. Whenever you're grouping such large groups of people together, that's xenophobia, you know? And so I think the most important thing that we need to do is denounce that hateful rhetoric and call it out and say, uh, actually, what you're saying is pretty xenophobic. Actually, what you're saying is actually racist, uh, even if you're you know, not specifically mentioning race or specifically mentioning the country that somebody's from. And just being aware what is actually being said here. The most prevalent is discussions of the other. Whenever we put people in others, in groups, and we fear the other, we fear what a group of people is going to do to us. We fear what a group of people is going to do to our economy. We fear what a group of people is going to do to our society. That's othering. Right. And that's a very we've had this discussion before. I feel like I feel like everyone has at some point, but that's a very like caveman like mentality. Right. We had in the caveman days, we grouped people in others and groups as others, as not us, as a way to survive. Right. Because we were afraid that some other group was going to come and kill us. That was in the caveman days. That's ancient history. Now our society doesn't work like that anymore. Others, people who are different, interact with us in society and it's not a danger to us. But our brains are still programmed to have others. I mean, I've been watching a documentary on babies and even babies' brains are able to categorize people as part of me, part of my group, part of my circle, and others, part of another group, part of another circle, right? And they actually develop, you know, some sort of anxiety or hesitancy towards others because it's different. It's not that the baby's racist. It's not that anything's wrong with the baby. It's just that our brains are hardwired to put people into groups. And our job now is to fight that or recognize it at least. Our job is to recognize when our brains are putting other peoples into groups and in therefore causing fear. Um, And that's the kind of rhetoric that I hear the most when it comes to immigrants 
is we fear another group of people. We fear this influx of immigrants who are coming because we don't know much about them, so we fear them. We fear people from uh, other countries who are working because perhaps they're taking our jobs. We fear these other groups of people who are coming because uh, they're coming from impoverished communities and perhaps they're going to bring ABC here. I mean, these are all, again, very xenophobic things, but they come across as we fear them. And because we fear them, we need to do something to protect ourselves. And in that rhetoric of, well, I need to protect you. I'm here to protect you. We need to protect ourselves. That's when racial and xenophobic actions occur. So you can see how this dangerous rhetoric leads to dangerous actions. So again, I'm yeah, speaking in very sure. general terms here, but, but my challenge to people is when you're on social media, when you're talking to people and you start to hear conversations that subconsciously group others as others, it's not we, it's a them, it's an unknown, it's a they, uh, at that point, kind of put the little alarm off in your head. Like, okay, is this actually a meaningful conversation or is this a conversation that is coming out of fear? Um, and fear of the unknown. Yeah. Right. And I think that's another small step to, for change, just like you're saying. Like, um, it doesn't have to be big, huge actions, but if, if it is to kind of not engage in a conversation like that or to call, you know, maybe call it out, like, this is not right or this, can, you know, is. This isn't helpful. Yeah. Because yeah. I think that's also giving people the benefit of the doubt. Um, overall, a lot of times they're repeating what they've heard. Or maybe they are concerned about the issue, but they are jumping to this us versus them mentality, like you were just saying. And so to just, I think, try to see where, like, where we do agree and come to our, like, well, we both care about people. You know, I know you might be on this side of this issue and I might be over here, but you do, you care about individuals too. So let's not dehumanize them and call them these names and categorize them this way. Like they're people too, you know? And, And so I think... Yeah, just having those conversations, and it can be hard to speak up sometimes. Um, yeah, but you're right. There is a way to go about it. I think there's yeah. a way to go about it. <laughs> Excuse me. I've also found that those most meaningful conversations, and this is the hardest, but the most meaningful conversations come from people who know you love them, right? Because if some person comes out at me on the internet that I don't know that well, I'm probably not going to listen because I'm going to be like, you don't know me. You don't know my life. No. But if it's coming from someone who loves me and they go about it appropriately and respectfully and, you know, it doesn't mean that you mince words, but if you go about it respectfully and if it's someone that loves me, I'm more like inclined to listen to them. And so maybe this goes back to our discussion of the savior. The savior had no problem calling people out, but a lot of those people changed and listened to him because they knew that underneath that reprimanding, underneath that criticism, he loved them. Jesus loved the people that he criticized and maybe even criticized is not the right word. Um, Maybe just talked with and explained to them. Maybe that's the right word. Um, And for those that were doing that were, that were being judgmental and bad, right? He condemned them for it, but they knew that he loved them. And so a lot of those people were willing to change. And I think the, the same goes for ourselves. If we actually recognize that, look, if we have love for ourselves, if we have love for other people and those people feel it and know it, they're probably going to be more likely to hear what we have to say. Yeah, I love that. And I think it kind of goes like this big group and the others, it goes back to the one again. Like if we can concentrate on the person that we're having the conversation with, the person that we love or the person we're trying to help, 
it becomes more personal. You can become more connected and you're not, you're, you're hearing their story and their, you know, and vice versa. They're hearing your side and your story and your perspective. And it becomes more of a personal connection than this other and this fear that if we can take time to listen to someone's story and their side, then the fear can, can go away and just the love can be there to find yeah. the connection. And, you know, a lot of times we don't come to the same agreement or conclusion, but we can all, we can come to an understanding of where they're coming from. Yeah. More. And maybe more of an understanding of the individual. Mm-hmm. You know, I was thinking about, um, before I heard your Ted talk and before I really even knew what the difference was between asylum seekers and refugees, I wouldn't have had a, like a personal story to attach to an asylum seeker, but now I do, you know, I have the story of that woman that you worked with that you spoke about in your TEDx talk. And now I feel like <laughs> if I can just remember, um, her story and try to apply it to the group because like we go back to the individual and think about them, but then realize they're all basically doing the same thing. Like you're telling us right now and you have more experience with this than I do. So I, you know, I can look to your wisdom because I, I also think that's another problem in our society is everyone thinks that they know everything about every topic. Yeah. (laughs) And I probably sometimes fall into, yeah, everyone's an expert. So it's like, I read this one article and I think I know everything about immigration and asylum seeking refugees. And I know what, you know, what, the solution needs to be. But like if we turn to their stories and then stories of people like you who have actually worked with them, maybe that's one way that we can gain better understanding and compassion for these groups is to like, think about that woman in this group and then, okay, well maybe I would think about this a little different with like laws or just even how we treat them at the border. Like, for sure. you know, if I think about her and then I think about how you brought up the LGBTQ community and I feel the same with that community. It's often, people might have some really like strongly held beliefs and homophobia or whatever, but then all of a sudden they have a gay family member come out or someone that they love, you know, a neighbor or a friend. And then all of a sudden, Oh wow. Like this, this group isn't as scary as I thought it was. And guess right. what? They're all like that. Like yeah. they're all, you just know, just like, yeah, with our episode with Richard Osler and yeah. just the listen, you know, learn and love. Like if you don't take the time to listen to their story and learn about them and their experiences. And you mentioned in your Ted talk, and I'm kind of trying to remember, you said, listen, learn, but then you said something else. And then speak. Remember what? Yeah. And speak. speak. Yeah. So to like, but speaking may, speaking's one of, one of the ways that we show love for someone. Yeah. Yeah. You're saying, but like the, yeah, the first thing was to listen and to learn and then to speak out. And just like with Richard, it's listen, learn and love. And you can, learn to love somebody once you hear their story and once you can see their perspective and not have your, these strong held beliefs that you thought were true without having any knowledge of someone in that space, either being an asylum seeker or LGBTQ. Yeah. Yep. And then I wrote down something you said in your Ted talk. This is kind of going back to the bullying again, but you said being blunt in your bullying is not a badge of honor and you got like a standing ovation. (laughs) So I thought that was so cool and just like such a good succinct way to say it. Um, because it is sometimes it's like the most strong opinion in the room or on social media or whatever, the most blunt, it feels like they are kind of wearing that badge of honor sometimes or that it's the majority. Get it. Almost yeah. like you think everybody's thinking that yeah. way because they're being yeah. so blunt and bold. Like, oh wow. And, and those are sometimes the loudest voices. Um, so anyway, I just thought that was like a good, a really good thing to remember, like for ourselves, but also the people that we're looking to in our communities is just remembering like just because they're blunt and bold in their speech doesn't doesn't mean that they're right. Yeah. Like we can really think about this. And oftentimes it's the more softer, um, there, there was a quote, we always talk about Adam Grant on this podcast, but he talked (laughs) about like wisdom versus, I can't remember what it was, but he's like, those with wisdom aren't always the loudest people in the room, but they, they're sitting back and they're listening to others. And then they're 
giving their opinions on the things, you know, and also like trying to find our common ground. Cause I do believe usually underneath it all, we all want what's best for other people. Yeah, it's for just sure. like, we might be kind of looking at it, at it in different ways, right. you know, for so. sure. And something that I've been learning and it kind of ties on to what you were saying to both of you, something I've been learning and observing is that really smart people and wise people change their opinions when they get more and new information. Right. And really smart people I'm learning have the ability to recognize, look, this was my opinion a year ago, but now that I've gained more information about this topic, uh, my opinion has changed. And that's okay. It doesn't mean that you were a bad person a year ago. It doesn't mean that you were this ignorant, dumb person a year ago. It just means that you didn't have the information that you have before. And so that's something that I've really tried to do. Um, but definitely when I look at people who I admire and who are so wise in my eyes, something that they're able to do is change their opinion on whether it be political things, whether it be religious things, whether it be, I mean, fill in the blank, anything about, you know, uh, vulnerable populations. When people learn more about the people or the systems or what's going on, they, it's okay to have the, your opinion change. And I think that's part of love too, is People change all around us. Our loved yeah. ones change all around us. And if we're unwilling to, to, to learn more about it, then we stay in our old ways. And that's not actually very intelligent or very smart. Yeah, right. <clears throat> it's that Maya Angelou quote, like, once we know better, we do better. Oh, right. Exactly. Right. You know, once we learn more, then you can change. And I think it's a sign of so many things, of wisdom, of maturity, of open-mindedness when we admit, oh, wow, I didn't realize that I was seeing yeah. it that way. And now it's I've... okay to change your mind. That's, yeah. that's yeah. what I always tell people. I feel like that's human growth yeah. or that's why we're here is to learn and grow and be better and do better. And it's all about learning and being open-minded to the fact that maybe you were wrong or you did see things a different way because you weren't educated in that, or you didn't take time to listen to somebody's experience. Yeah, yeah. for sure. So. I thought about there's this like meme or quote or whatever I saw on social media recently that said, there was like these two people, you know, like stick figures talking. And the one says to the one like, oh, you've changed. And she's like, yeah, we're supposed to, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, because oftentimes people use change as kind of like a dig, like, oh, you, well, you've changed, you know? And, yeah. um, I think that's a way that they try to silence and maybe silence is a little dramatic, but just be like, well, come on, you haven't always thought this way. Like, why, why are you now, you know, speaking yeah. out for asylum seekers right. or LGBTQ or whatever it is talking to people in this podcast, I think, um, we're talking about their shifts, but it's also this internal shift for us. And hopefully for our listeners too, is like, we're just shifting because the more that you learn and talk to people, um, everyone has, we have such unique experiences and it just helps us grow in our understanding of others and just yeah. get a little bit more knowledge so that we can look at other people around us and have a little bit more compassion and understanding. So, yeah, I agree you know, the platform for other people to share that, you know, your, your shift and what you've learned, but we've already learned so much from our guests and mm -hmm. yeah. And feel like, Oh, I've had a shift in me with learning these different things that I'm not familiar with and that I'm being educated on. And it's a beautiful thing. I mean, yeah, that's the sure. whole thing yep. for sure. It's all part of the journey. And we learned yep. again, I'm bringing it back to, to Christ one last time, just cause I've been thinking about him throughout this podcast, but Jesus didn't learn everything all at once. Right. He was perfect, but he learned grace by grace. And again, if we want to be like him, then it's okay for us to learn a little bit here, a little bit there, a line here, a line there. And it's all part of the journey. Yeah. Yeah. That's really I cool. I love that. Yeah. That's that might awesome. be a good place to yeah. 
wrap up unless you have any other things you want to share with us no this has been awesome i love being able to talk with you guys and and think about different ways that we can get in the community we can always do better i can always do better but that being said there's so many opportunities out there to help people around you yeah well i've learned a lot today and i love just the kind of small simple steps to know where to begin to help and make change yeah it's been so good and we will link um in the in our podcast like where we post and in the podcast notes and everything to how people can get in touch with you if you're um so Carla we didn't really mention we've been diving into your story (laughs) so much but Carla does so much she's like amazing so she's got her regular social media account I don't know if that's public or private but I think it's a private account it's just baby pictures honestly it's baby pictures right (laughs) but she has a house design account when you're so talented in design so we can link to that and um, we probably TED talk. Is, yeah. And then course. your TED talk. And I think we'll post that or link to that on our, I'll figure out how we can share that on our social media as yeah, well. Cause I know would people would love to see that. That would be great. Yeah. And, and I will add about like the house design account. That was something we talk about transition and shifts. That was something that was actually really hard for me to do because I felt like house decor and interior design is so trivial compared to asylum seeking and immigration law (laughs) and politics and all these important things going on in the world. Um, But I will say for people who get involved in advocacy, it's okay to find a hobby or find enjoyment in things that seem trivial. Mm, That is something I had to learn in such a hard way. And I have that discussion with some of my like fellow board members on some of the nonprofits that I work on because they're all like, we need to be focused on helping people. And that's what the most important thing is. And while I agree, I always tell them, it's okay for you to go do something fun that is of zero impact on the world. It's okay for you yeah, to something yeah. you enjoy. Yeah. yeah, do something you, you enjoy. You got to keep your mental health. Yeah, have a check. hobby. Yeah, yeah, and that's probably a really nice break for you to have something that's totally unrelated to that kind of thing. And it's just almost using a different part of your brain yeah. and a different. Yeah. yeah, it's creative. It's you're like beautifying the spaces around you, and it's so okay that's really to find neat. enjoyment in simple things that perhaps again to some may seem trivial it's okay to enjoy them that took me a long time to figure out that's actually we usually I think because we've talked about so many amazing shifts and things we usually wrap up by asking how do you find beauty in life after going through this transition but Mm. what you just said I Mm -hmm. feel like is such a good point like you can do all these things and I don't know maybe you, you probably could summarize it better than me but but don't don't also don't overlook the beauty and the joy and the little things as well that may be more trivial but that's okay too yeah it's hard but you can learn that even though there's so much suffering in the world you can still enjoy the good things that you have too you can help others and you can enjoy the blessings that you have too and finding that balance is hard but it's again part of the human experience and you'll find that the happier you are and enjoying the good things that you do have the more you'll be able to give those to other people as well yeah definitely yeah that's really good awesome. okay awesome thank you thank so you much. so much carla Great, that was such you. a good conversation we loved it thank you i did too this was fun again i'm so honored to be here you guys are great well thanks okay. well we're honored to have you so yes. thank you sounds good thank you Okay. So yeah, I love that conversation with Carla. Yeah, it was so good. I'm so glad we got to talk with her and 
I just learned so much. I knew it was going to be good, but I think it was even better and more informative and, and just fun too. She's a really yeah. fun person. She's just a good person with a good heart and mm-hmm. just wants to help people. And anyway, I thought it was so great. I had so many good tidbits of information. And- yeah. And she's so smart and well-spoken. And anyway, Carla, we love you. Thank yes, you for thank you. coming on. It was the perfect episode two for December. I feel yeah. Like, I feel so. like she brought in some, you know, service and ways to help other people and to look out for the one. So yeah, it was really cool. Awesome. So, all right. Well, we don't actually normally do this is probably people that listen. No, but we wanted to hop on and just say that we're going to take the next couple of weeks off for Christmas and the holiday break and everything. So, um, yeah, we won't have another episode come out until the first week of January. Yeah. The first Tuesday. So. But our guest in January, you're going to love her. She is our therapist. Yes. Brandy. We both happen to have the same therapist yes and she's so great and she's really just kind of fun and full of life but also full of some wisdom and maybe some tips and techniques to for our mental health for the year yeah yeah we kind of talked about that we already did the interview a week or two ago and she just had a lot of good thoughts for going into the new year and everything so we're excited for that and yeah some other really great guests coming too that we've already interviewed or that we have in the works so we're super excited for next year Yes. So thanks so much for listening this year and helping us get this podcast off the ground. It's been a lot of fun. Yes. And we just appreciate all the support and all the guests that have taken their time to come on and help us out. Yeah. Yeah. So we hope you guys have a good holiday and a good break and we'll see you in the new year. Yes. Merry Christmas. Yes. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks. Thank you so much for listening today. We hope you enjoyed this conversation and would love if you subscribed to the podcast and followed along as we continue hearing more inspiring stories. You can also follow us on Instagram at Beautiful Shifts Podcast, where we will post updates with our latest interviews. We'd like to thank the band We The Lion for giving us permission to use their beautiful song Move Along for our podcast. Take a minute to listen to the song and the lyrics and enjoy. I find a way to know myself All my thoughts are mine again And begin to understand where to go Now it's time to move along Now it's time to move along Take this journey as my own Feel the strength right in my bones All I want is to believe Life is my own Life is my own I'll start again, mind is free I can feel I'll take a chance, I won't be wrong Yes, now it's time to move along Now it's time